darkness fell over the land. Um, sorry, I think I'm funny and no one else heard it. I have my mic muted. It's like darkness fell over the land. Um, I, uh, in my mic checks, typically, this has nothing to do with the message. I was just being random. In my mic checks, if you ever sneak in, um, I typically will go through all these different voice and accents just because I like doing that. Um, so it's something for me. So you didn't hear that, but it was even more awkward because I'm like, it's muted. And I'm like, darkness falls over the land. And I'm like, people are really weirded out right now. You know, their kids are not going to sleep tonight. I'm sorry. Okay. So, um, hey, my name is Chris Causey. I'm lead pastor here, and I'm so glad that you are here today. Um, today is going to be a fun day. We're going to continue a series that we started a couple weeks ago called Made for Mondays. And the idea of this series is really to lean into the conversation of work, but a conversation that's so much bigger than the current moment. The current moment around this conversation of work is the great resignation and how everyone's thinking about leaving their job and everyone's job is upended and question marks and question marks. But the reality is, is that when the great resignation is not so great and it's just the job, how we work is still a reality for every single season. And the purpose of this series is really not to even lean into this cultural moment, but to really say, regardless of where you are vocationally, whether you are running a home or whether you're running a Fortune 500 company or any somewhere in between, that there is a way that we can engage with work that is the better way. That work is a gift from God created by him before the fall. It wasn't part of the curse. It wasn't a punishment that many of your teenagers might think it is when you ask them to do something. Right? Work was a gift from God. It was a good thing. And so how do we make it and reclaim the goodness that's in it? So kind of over the last couple of weeks, we've been journeying through different topics. Uh, Last week, we looked at one of the um, kind of the stupid traps we can fall into at work that gets us in trouble with comparison. And today, what I want to do is take you on another journey for another one of those stupid traps. But here's my disclaimer. I need you to do this with me because I want to take you on a journey and a narrative arc and a story from the life of Jesus that's going to require a little bit of time for us to get there. So what that means is that we're going to need to stay close together. You need to trust me and just swim behind me with this thing, all right? Because I want to look at about 72 hours in the last week in the life of Jesus. And to do that, we're going to hop between a couple of the biographical accounts of the life of Jesus. So we're going to go through two different books, two different moments, and you're going to hear a lot more of the kind of the socio-economic political backdrop of first century Israel. And so that's going to require you to say, not where are we going, but I'm trusting you're taking me somewhere. All right? So this is going to be my invitation. I need you to be a little tiny cute duckling falling behind the mommy duck. And I'm not the mommy duck and you're not the duckling, but you get my metaphor. All right? So with that said, I want to start us on the journey and begin in a book called Mark. Mark is named after Mark, who was the author, who spent time with Peter, who had spent time with Jesus. Mark's book reads like an action, kind of packed, nonstop. It reads like Peter's personality. In fact, if you were to read it in the original language Mark wrote it, you would be winded trying to read through it because it just has that path and that progress and that pace to it. It's fast. It's driving you towards the last week where all of a sudden the book slows down. About a third of the book is dedicated to the last week 
of Jesus' ministry. So of the 150 plus weeks that Jesus was public in his ministry, Mark will spend one-third of his book dedicated to just one of those weeks. It's a uniqueness. So you'll see why in a second. Mark 10, verse 32-33, they were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. So here's the backdrop I need you to know. First century Israel was an interesting place. It was a nation who had been occupied by the Roman Empire, one of those great kind of empires throughout human history that you've studied at some point that had a Caesar who thought he was God, and that the Roman Empire was vast. It was one of the biggest, not the biggest, but one of the biggest empires in human history, and that Israel was on the outskirts. It was a place where there was revolts and rebellions, so because of that, the Roman Empire had a special presence there. They had soldiers who were vicious. The Romans used crucifixion as a way of crowd control and, and manipulating society. It was oftentimes they would crucify hundreds of people leading into a city who had just had a rebellion. So to teach everyone who came to that city, rebelling against Rome does not work. So they were a brutal people. And Jesus is leading into the final week of his life. And on the way to Jerusalem is Passover, one of the most significant religious feast festivals. The population of Jerusalem would have swelled and exponentially. I mean, you're talking the entire nation comes to this city that was already a decent-sized city for the ancient world, which meant crowd control, Roman soldiers, and a lot of show of force. Now, underneath the backdrop was the Israelites were tired of being oppressed. Now, this is a hard thing for many of us to wrap our minds behind because we don't live in a country that's occupied by a foreign power dictating your moves. Some of you may feel like you're trapped in a situation right now where that's the reality. But this was all of life for them. Their life was under control by a group of people who did not value their culture, did not value their faith, did not value them as people. It was so bad that according to Roman law, I could, as a Roman soldier, walk up to any of you and command you to carry my bag for a solid mile because I got tired and I didn't want to wear my donkey out. So I could walk up to you, give you 50 pounds of my pack, and say, carry this the next mile. And if you did not carry it, you would be beaten and thrown into jail. So you had this two-mile oppression where you would walk one mile carrying all this weight while the animal and the soldier walked beside you. And then you had to walk one mile back to where you were originally, where you were plucked out of the rhythm of everyday life. This was a common occurrence. This made you mad. This made you wish and cry out for someone to come in and stick it to the Roman Empire. And this is why this paragraph has the statement, and the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid. Because in the backdrop of the last three years, people are starting to see Jesus as the person who can do it. They're starting to see Jesus as someone who can overthrow the Roman, pow the Roman powers who are present, oppressing them. And the disciples have been amazed because they've watched three years of a viral sensation take off. They've gone from 
following a nobody in the middle of nowhere to being the center of everyone. No matter where Jesus went, there was a crowd. And there were people who were clamoring for his attention because he was a big deal. And, and it says that, again, he took the 12 aside and he told them what was going to happen to him. We are going to Jerusalem, to which all the disciples would have been like, yes. It would have been like, revolution. Like, let's go do this. This is the perfect week. All of Israel is going to be in Jerusalem. We can rise up. We can take the battle, right? It's like Hamilton with all the upbeatness happening in the moment. They're like, oh, we are in a moment, right? We're not going to throw away our shot. It's going to happen. And then Jesus says this, and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. So they're like, uh, well. And like any good child, they respond this way. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him and said, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right hand and the other sit at your left in your glory. It's like, I'm sorry. Did you not hear the part I just gave you? They're like, yeah, 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 yeah. Like, I, I know you told me to go clean my room, but can I, can I get ice cream? I mean, it's complete different. Like, I know words came out of your mouth, but I'm ignoring them because that's not what I want to hear. I want to, Jesus, can you do this thing for me? I mean, it's, it's so funny, but it's so real. I mean, I, have the, I feel like I have this moment all the time with my nine-year-old. I'm like, did you not hear anything I just said to you? Right? They're, they're like so convinced like, Jesus is going to Jerusalem, and their mind is already ahead of what's going to happen. And they're thinking glory. They're thinking revolution. They're thinking victory. And they're like, hey, Jesus, we know, right, right, yeah, I know that weird thing you said, but, hey, we know you're number one. Right? Give me a J. Give me an E. Right? Everybody, everybody, everybody knows Jesus is number one. Could we be number two or number three? That's all we want. We just want to be number two and number three. And, and it says, that when the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. They're mad. Not because they asked the question. Like, oh my goodness, did you not just hear what he said? How insensitive. How stupid. No, they're jealous because they wanted to be number two and they wanted to be number three. So they're upset that they beat, Jesus, they beat them to Jesus with a punchline. And, and then Jesus called them together. And I imagine at this point, he had to be like, oh, my goodness, what has happened? Why did I pick these people? And he's like, c -c -c come, come here. You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. But not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be a slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus is inviting them into a conversation that they seem to not be getting. He's used the Son of Man reference again, which is a throwback to the book of Daniel. Not one that you necessarily need to recognize or understand at this point. But Jesus is 
taking them back to something that they should have caught the illusion. They should have picked up what he was saying. And they don't. They're obsessing over power and authority and control. That's where they are. This is why he's, he's like, look, let's have this conversation about power. You think, because you've been following me and you've watched what I do, you have in your head that I'm about to go in and I'm about to go full Jason Bourne on the Roman Empire. And you think that when I do that, that you're going to ride in as number two and number three like some Fast and Furious movie, and you're going to be my posse. But that's not what I'm getting ready to do because that's not even what power is about. He's like, this is not going to be the mark of how you use power. He says, if you want to become great, which at that point it was clear all of them wanted that. They're having an argument about who gets to be two and three, right? They want to be the senior vice president. He says, no, you have to be the servant, which is like a concept that we miss because when he said that, they didn't have a concept of servant pop in their mind. They had faces and names of servants they knew. Like, this was real to them. This was people in their head who had had probably been their servants at some point in their family. And he says, no, you must be a slave of all. He's, He's ratcheted up. He's like, no, I am turning this whole thing upside down. And it's far more extreme than you even realize. And and all of them have no clue what he's saying. They're not tracking with what he's just put down. And this is why I want to say, you got to stay with me. Because we're going somewhere with this. We're moving somewhere. And where I want to take you now is jump fast forward 72 hours later as an evening meal was being prepared. Jesus had given them this powerful explanation about power. And the week had just gotten even crazier. A few hours after the first conversation, they'll ride into the city and thousands of people will be cheering and chanting, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. It's like, give me a J, J, give me an E, E, give me, I mean, like, it is like insane what happens in the city. And then after that, Jesus is in a series of public debates with the most powerful, intellectually, like, significant figures in Jerusalem at the time, and he owns them. Like, I'm talking about had it been a YouTube video, it would have been clickbait, and everybody would have watched it because he made them look so stupid. And you're like, burn, Jesus, burn. I mean, it was so crazy. And it just keeps building day after day after day, and then Jesus performs this miracle, and they're like, what? I mean, it's insane. And then it's culminating. The biggest crowd has gathered. It's the most significant moment of the week, and they think it's about to go down. I mean, it is like Chicago Bulls, like entrance music is playing in their head. You know what I'm talking about? Like during the great period of like, anyways, like, I mean, like Jordan, right? I mean, this is big, big moment. And so they go in, and they start to eat, and they don't even recognize what's happening in front of them. And as the evening meal has been prepared, John tells us that Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. And that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the mill, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped the towel around his waist. To which, in that moment, 
everyone in the room would have gotten instantly confused. Because in common culture of the day, the servant that Jesus had referred to, there's one servant that on the pecking order of servants and slaves that was the lowest. And it was the servant who was responsible for washing the feet when people came in to eat. You see, because of the layout, they didn't use tables and chairs the way we think about tables and chairs. They reclined, which meant that as you were reclining to eat, your feet, your dirty, dusty, poo-covered feet were close to the table. So a servant, the lowest servant, the one just starting out, doing all the jobs no other servant wants, is responsible for going around and washing the feet of every person who enters the home. And when they watched Jesus get up and begin to undress with his outer garment and wrap a towel around his waist, they would have instantly started to recoil. Because they knew in a flash, oh wait, no one washed our feet. There's no servant here. And then it says, after that he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. I mean, in the, the moments that follow this moment, Peter is, is so offended. He sh- screams at Jesus, no, you're not allowed to do this. How offensive. Jesus, you can't do this. This is what the lowest servants do. Because he's offended that Jesus would do that. He they had seen what those hands could do. They had watched those hands bring Lazarus back from the dead just a few days before this moment. They had seen those hands heal eyes that had been blinded or restore people who could not walk. They had seen those hands reach up and pull Peter from the drowning water to enable him to be rescued as he walked on the water. They had seen the power Behind those hands. And those hands with those powers did not belong behind the towel washing their feet. And after Peter gets put in his position and his place by Jesus, there's not a single bit of conversation that happens for probably the next 30 or 45 minutes where Jesus washes their feet. All you would have heard in the sound of silence was the shuffling of Jesus' body, water being wrung out in a metal basin, water dripping, more washing and the scrubbing of dirt on feet. And you'd have heard this. And then he had moved over. He did that for every single one of them. And each one of them had seen those same hands do incredible things. Which is why I think Jesus says this to them. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. And he said, do you understand what I have done for you? And the answer was no. Because they didn't have a box for those hands doing what those hands it did. He says, you call me teacher and Lord, which are the two highest titles in Jewish culture you can give. 
So Jesus is, in the, with his actions, he's the lowest. With his words, he's reminding them that he's the highest. He said, rightfully so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set an example that you should do as I have done for you. The example wasn't literally going around and washing people's feet. It was that washing people's feet was the lowest possible thing you could do in that society. And he said, if as I am as, as great as I am, as the great I am, just did what I did for you, then you have no excuse for anything that should ever be asked of you. There is no place, there is no person, there is no thing that is beneath you. Because I stand above all things, and yet I bow down beneath you to wash your feet. And this is mentally jarring for them. This is why I've said all along, you've got to follow me. Because this is going somewhere. And one of the ways it's going is actually a study that got released this week. A study that in some ways captures brilliantly what Jesus was demonstrating that night that has direct implications for you and me and all the places that we show up to work. It was a fascinating study done by a university in England where they asked the simple question, why do ducks, ducklings, swim in a straight line behind their mama duck? This is probably an image that we've all seen at some point in our lives. It's very cute, right? I mean, it's, you're like, oh, look at this fluffy little tiny creature following your mommy duck. But there's actually a genius reason and these scientists were able to figure out studying the wave patterns that the mama duck creates. And what they found, doing way more science than you would ever think on a duck and ducklings in the water, they realized that mama ducks create a special disruptive wave pattern in how she swims as she's swimming through the water. And that the force that she's generating with those feet that are pounding in the water and the way that her body moves through the water actually creates a wave that doesn't just disrupt what's happening in front, it creates this special set of circumstances behind her. You see, the first few ducklings immediately behind the mama duck is literally receiving all the power of her feet through the rippling of the waves coming behind her. That the ducklings right behind her, they're paddling their little feet as cute as they could be. But in the course of paddling all their feet, what the baby ducklings do not realize is that the power the mama's generating with her feet is creating a force of energy that is propelling them forward. If those baby ducks stopped paddling their feet, they would not stop. They would keep moving because the mama duck's power and the way that the waves are rippling behind her is literally pulling and dragging the baby ducks along. But they don't know that. So what do they do? They paddle their cute little feet. And as they paddle their cute little feet, they continue something that the mama started. This brilliant, genius design that God created that actually takes the power that she had that had gone through them and allows it to slowly trickle through all of the around, surrounding ducklings behind them. 
that every duckling behind another duckling behind another duckling behind the mama duck receives the power the mama duck creates. And it literally creates the force that allows all of these tiny little itsy bitsy baby ducklings to keep up with the supermassive mama duck. It's incredible. The power she has is literally being given to the power of those who are behind her that enable them to move. And this is so extraordinary that it can literally be carried through. This is 50 ducklings behind a mama duck. 50 ducklings. And I'm up close and they're so cute. Oh my goodness, they're so cute. But there's 50 of them. The power she is generating with her small little frame is literally allowing all of these ducklings to stay in perfect harmony right behind her, even in the midst, if you notice, of the water that has current. Outside of her power, they would drift away and they would be swept away. But in her power, they keep moving forward. And here's where the genius of what Jesus was orchestrating that day he was demonstrating, not just in what he had explained the few days before, but in the example that he had modeled this moment. He showed them a different way of using power. For their culture, power was what you could use to make someone do something for you. Power was what you could use to make someone do something that they didn't want. But that's not just a first century thing. That's a 21st century thing. When we think about power, we think about the corner office, we think about the title and the power that it conveys. It's the ability for us to tell someone to do something and they have to do it. Right? It's, I need that TPS report. Right? It's that idea that like, hey, you can't fight back. You don't have the power. I've got the power. So you have to do what I say. And what Jesus does is he comes along and his explanation and in his example, he completely reorients what power actually is. You see, there's this stupid idea that absolute power corrupts absolutely. And, and I know that sounds bold for me to call it stupid, because it is. It is stupid. Because I believe, theologically, that Jesus was the most powerful person who's ever walked on planet Earth, and yet he was the most uncorrupt of all of them. So that is not logically coherent. What power does is not corrupt. What power does is power reveals. Power shows you what's on the inside. You don't know someone is a jerk sometimes until you give them a little bit of power. When they didn't have power, they weren't a jerk because they didn't have the ability to show it. That wasn't the downstream effect. Some of us are like, well, you, you should meet my boss. He's a jerk. Well, your boss was always a jerk just didn't have a place to demonstrate it. She just didn't have an avenue to show it. Power reveals. Because power flows like this. It creates a downstream effect. And what Jesus does is says, when you've been entrusted with power, when you find yourself in a room and you're the most powerful person in the room, you have a responsibility if you're a Christ follower and how you use it. And I think all of us, even if you're not a Christian, intuitively you get this because the people who've been your most favorite coaches, the people who've been your most favorite bosses, the people who've been the most impactful teachers in your life were people who 
intrinsically did this. They took the power they had. They took the influence they had. They took the, the tools, the gifts, the knowledge that they possessed, and they passed it down to you. And that some of you are only in the places you are. Because for a season of time, you got behind someone who gave you their influence, who entrusted to you their power, their resources, their experience, their insights. And that the people who've impacted your life the most, teacher, coach, parent, boss, whoever it is, it was because this was happening. They recognized power was not something to be used for their good. It was something to be leveraged for yours. And that if you want a glimpse of how you understand power, look at the people who are behind you. Are they drowning? Are they drifting out into the current? Or do you and I, as we show up on Mondays, do we demonstrate very practically what Jesus was demonstrating that day by asking these two questions. As we walk into the room with our kids, of our patients, of our assistant or the team that we lead, do we walk in with the posture of not, hey, look, I've arrived, but how can I help? Do we walk in as a hero or do we walk in as a hero maker? I think people who understand power understand that the best fruit is the fruit you help grow on other people's trees. Not the fruit that grows on yours. And that how can I leverage me for you? Imagine if just you and I began to ask ourselves this question when we walked into the rooms as Christ followers. When we begin to imagine how God could use us. And we looked at our team and we recognized that the power we've been entrusted, the authority that we have, it's temporary. One day you will not be in the job you are in. One day those kids will not be in the home with you. One day you will not be the coach to that team. It is all temporary. I mean, this week we had a significant moment in human history, in American history specifically, that in some ways I think was a good example for us. Right? Joe Biden goes under for a medical process, and he has to be put to sleep. And in that moment, he transfers the power of the presidency to the first woman to have ever held that, pres that power of presidency in U.S. history. It's a significant moment. But in the moment, what we can miss is that there was actually something genius. Joe Biden holding the most powerful position on planet Earth, going under for a very regular medical procedure, transfers the power because it was never his power to begin with. That all power is on loan. All authority is borrowed. All influence is temporary. And are you in this current moment stewarding what's been entrusted to you by asking these questions? And I don't know what role it is that you have an authority or influence. 
But if you are a person who is fortunate enough to get to where you are because someone else invested in you, maybe the answer to your question is to do what they did for you for someone else. Maybe it's for you to imagine when you look around the room, who is it that I see something inside that if they got behind me, I could loan them some of my power so that they could get further than where they could ever get on their own because of the currents of our culture. For us to walk into the rooms where we have influence and ask the question, how can I help instead of us saying, these people are here to help me? And to actually demonstrate this powerful principle of love by leveraging our lives for them. That that's a powerful opportunity that we all get. And Jesus, to make the point, doesn't just say, I've given you an example. He says, very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent me. He's like, just to be clear, you have no excuse. If I did this for you, none of us are in any situation, position, posture, authority role. None of us are in any place that exempts us from what Jesus just demonstrated. But he says to this, now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Like I said, some of us, I'm on this stage because someone stronger, wiser, saw something in me and invited me behind them. I would have never, ever in a million years picked to be a pastor. Would have never even fathomed it. I'm not even a big fan of people. And yet I'm a pastor. Right? I mean, like who would have ever thought? But I genuinely love what I get to do. Some of you I've sat across the table, some of us listening online I've sat across from you, going through some of the darkest moments of your entire life, and I love the privilege that I get to be there for you and with you. I love that I get to work and prepare and come up and give you the fruit of the energy expended in the week to help you go and leverage your life in all the areas of your life for him. But the only reason I'm up here is because someone stepped in and created a path for me to swim behind them. And their life, their greatest fruit, they have so much fruit, but some of their fruit is growing on my tree. This is what Jesus understood. Some of us want to live lives that have significant impact. We want our lives to count. And we bought into a lie at some point that power and my life and my comfort and my stuff and my things were the way to do it. And what Jesus comes along and says, no, The way that you can have impact and significance is to leverage your life and grow fruit on other people's trees and make a difference. So long after you're gone, your life is still radiating. Your power is still echoing through everyday life for them. We're blessed if we do this. This is why at this church we have opportunities for you to serve. Not because we want you to volunteer to keep this machine going, but because I sincerely know as someone who was impacted because someone was serving in a church that set my life into motion, that when you step into opportunities where you intentionally get beyond you and your self-centered orientation and you just show up to help and to do and to be a part of something bigger, it makes a difference in you and in them. That's why when we were dreaming about how we could create environments for people to serve, we thought through everything. So even if you're 
part of this church and you still don't believe what this church believes, there's a place for you to serve because I believe you should be able to be a part even if you don't believe it. So we've created those opportunities. Whether it's like doing physical stuff of moving things around and help, helping us get ready or helping us clean up after the service or whether it's playing with kids and engaging with them and, and, and really depositing fruit in the next generation. Like there's a place for you to serve here. And that you can find that place. And if it's not here, it needs to be somewhere. Because all of us have power. All of us have influence. All of us have authority. And the question is, what are you doing with it? Does the flow flow to you where it's all about you? Or does it flow from you and how your life leverages and lifts others up? I mean, Jesus was genius when he thought of work and he thought about us being in our workplaces. But I said all along, stick with me because there's something about this duck thing. And here's the last piece as we wrap up and close out with a song today that I think is really important. What we realized about the physics of the mama duck, what Jesus demonstrated that night serving, was actually there was even more to it. Within 24 hours of him washing their feet, he would have a nail hole in his feet. He'll have been crucified and he'll have already died. And his body will have already been stuck in a tomb. And in the process of being stuck in the tomb, just a few more days later, the grave will be completely broke open and he's going to walk out alive. And in that moment of that Friday to that Sunday, he demonstrates something for us that's far greater than just leveraging our power in our workplaces. He gives us the very core of the best news of the Christian faith which is that in our brokenness, in our weakness, in our inability, he gives us his strength and his grace. See, every world religion in human history and every distortion of Christianity that has ever existed in human history tells you this, that if you work hard enough, if you paddle your feet fast enough, then you'll be good enough to get into heaven. As if heaven is just something that you can aspire to and work towards. Like a really good 501 3B or 501C3 or whatever that thing is, right? Like with some numbers and some letters with a lot of money for you. That that's the win. And Jesus comes along and what he does is demonstrates a whole different framework of faith. One that isn't about you working hard enough to be good enough to get into heaven. Even some distortions of Christianity have convinced you that if you just pray the right prayers and do the right actions and say the right things, that that's still going to get you into heaven. So many of you and the conversations I've had with you growing up in the Catholic faith, you were taught, well, if you do all these things and you kind of check all the boxes, then you'll know you're okay with God. But what marks many of your stories when I listen to you talk about faith is you've used the word dead, you've used the word guilt, you used the word shame, and you used the word fear about you not being enough. And Jesus comes along and the 
the good news of the Christian faith is not that if you work hard enough, that if you're smart enough, if you do enough good, that you can get in. It's that what he did on the cross, what he did when he walked out of the grave, that power, that strength was transferred to us for those who follow him, stay behind him and stand in his stream of grace Those people, we call them Christians because they've trusted that I can't do this. I recognize I can't do this. I see that the brokenness in me is bigger than the goodness that I could try to do outside of me. That there is not enough hoops that I can jump through to remove the debt and the darkness inside of me. That those people, those really rare blessed people who've looked in the mirror and seen honestly how jacked up we really are. That at the foot of the cross, they discover that the brilliance of Jesus is that he gives to us his righteousness, his perfection, his grace, his strength, his joy, his peace. That in the currents of life, no matter how hard, how strong they are, when we are with him in his flow of grace, that our little feet may be moving, but all along it's his power that is propelling And for some of us, we've never, ever recognized who he is and what he's done. We fell into the trap. If I just made enough, did enough, gave enough away, if I just checked these boxes, said these prayers, did these kind of ritualistic religious things, then I'd be okay. And Jesus came to set us free from that today. And that there is a hope and a joy that comes in simply recognizing who he is. And turning to him. Now, I've created an entire website that's inside of our app just to help you in that journey. Because I believe one of the best things, the best thing you can ever do is to brutally recognize with honesty who you really are. And simultaneously look to the cross and see who he is in that intersection. And in the recognition of who he is and in you are, trusting that what he has done covers who you are and transforms that. That recognition and that trust is what makes you a Christian. It's that moment that makes you a Christ follower. Because you realize the power he has can cover all the brokenness and the powerlessness that you have. And that for some of you, maybe you've tried to lean into the Christian faith, but You have trouble because people used power that the Christian faith had, and they used it to abuse you. They used it to control you. They used it to buy something, to live in a jet, to soar around. They manipulated whatever. Maybe for some of you, the reason you don't follow Jesus is because you got burned by someone who used power in a way that was completely antithetical. the antithesis, the, the opposite, let me just say it that way, of Jesus. And for some of us, that maybe it's leaning in and actually exploring the Christian faith. And there's a book that I'll give you if you go to this website to help you journey through that. For some of you, maybe it's to finally say, you know what, I want to follow him. And if that's you, then for you to go to this website. We want to help you get started in that. But what I love about that duck illustration is it speaks to all of us 
even in the midst of people who've already followed Jesus, that for some of you, to quote the very wise words of Finding Nemo, just keep swimming. Just keep moving those little feet. Because you're in a stream of grace and power and strength that is not your own. You will make it through. Because he is breaking through the hardness, the darkness, the struggle, the challenge, the depression. Like his power and his strength is big enough to carry you through this season, no matter how dark or strong this season is. And all you got to do is just keep moving those little feet because it's not even your power pulling you through it. And your act of faith is just to do this. I trust you. I trust you. I trust you. Keep moving. Keep moving. Because all of us, all of us have some sort of power in our life. But the beauty and the wonder of today and how we're going to close out is that for all of us, no matter where we are, Jesus is offering his power to us. And that's the power that when leveraged makes all the difference. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for your grace and your strength and thank you for the physics of a duck swimming and how it points us to so many things that are profound and true about you and about us. And so thank you, Father, for the invitation today to turn to you, to follow you, to find in you a grace and a strength that is bigger than our addictions, that a grace and a strength that is bigger than our circumstances, a grace and strength that is larger than the financial, the health, the, the physical, the emotional, the mental that we find ourselves in the midst of today. Thank you that your power on the cross that broke forth from the grave is the hope we need. And I pray even now, Father, for those who are listening, whether it's right now or it's later in the week, that this would be a moment for those who've never turned to you would simply say, yes, Jesus, I need you. I need you to cover all the worst parts of me. I need you to come and fill me the holes in my soul that you would cover them, repair them, fill them, and that we would find in you a grace that's bigger than our guilt and our shame. And I pray that right now, for some of us, today would be the day that we turn to you and begin to follow for those who are in the room who are walking through the midst of a dark struggle where they're asking the questions not about how to leverage power, but will they even make it through because they feel so powerless. I pray that even now in their soul that you would whisper to them, whether they're listening online or in this room, God, that you are greater and stronger and that you would breathe into them a freshness renewedness that says to them just keep swimming just keep moving that this isn't a moment of breakdown this is a moment where I'll bring breakthrough if you just keep following me and I pray that they would find in that fresh strength and thank you Jesus that all of these things can be prayed because of who you are and what you did 
on the cross in the way that you broke out of the grave. Thank you that this is not hype, that this is hope, this is help that happens only because of you, Jesus. In whose name I pray.